Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Theodore Deal from Richard Mill. Theo has had a varied and exciting career. He was originally conservatory trained as a harpsichordist and early music specialist. He worked for many years as an A&R manager and produced off several record labels with over 650 recordings to his name. In the 1990s, he made a change to watch journalism and quickly became working regularly with all the major watch magazines and newspapers, including the Financial Times. It was during his work as a specialist watch journalist that he met Richard Mill. He joined Richard's fledgling company as one of the first three people to work there. Theo is their company spokesman, horologist and historian. Theo, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Sean. I appreciate it. So today we are um, going to be talking about luxury, but first I wanted um, to talk a bit about you and you know, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and to describe what it is that you do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a long story. Um, I've been with Richard Meal now for about 17 years. And like you mentioned in the opening, I originally was one of three people uh, at that time working at the company. So in the very first days, I had several different jobs. It really was everything from directing photography sessions, writing texts. I built the company's first website with an agency in Paris. That was a, a year, a year long affair. It was a very complex site, um, ordering champagne. Uh, writing books, uh, dealing with journalist visits, going to the factory and discovering what I had to write about the watches to translate it into catalogs. So I was basically doing everything. Now um, that's changed drastically. We've gone from three people to, at the moment, about 300. Uh, that's excluding the worldwide distribution network. Uh, and there's a lot of new people have come in. So at the moment, I'm mostly specialized uh, as uh, the historian of the company, I would say, uh, dealing with some presentations uh, and presenting the company at certain events uh, around the world uh, when I'm called for. The industry's changed a, part, a lot over the past year, but how's it changed over the past five years? Yeah, it's, um, how can I say, I think these last five years, especially the last year with COVID, has had an uh, incredible influence on the industry. One of the main issues, which was the same with the fashion industry, it's, it's something not just only for the watch industry, was the fact that all of these companies wanted to get involved, well, let's say luxury companies, wanted to get involved in digital marketing and connecting with their clients. They didn't know how. So they were always dipping their toes in the water a little bit and pulling back. And you saw, for instance, Hermes putting just like very small items online, but not anything really expensive because they were afraid it would take away the cachet of the brand in a certain way. Watch companies were similar. Uh, they saw, of course, commercial companies doing normal fashion, lower price goods en masse online. But luxury in the digital world requires a different technique. And all these questions and all these debates that were going on behind the scenes uh, in company offices resolved quickly when COVID came, because now people had to keep going. They had to find solutions. And what we found and what many companies found in luxury was that uh, people were perfectly happy to deal with the digital world under the present situations. Um, you have to think of a number of aspects uh, which you can think of right off the top of your head. But let's look at one major topic. 
a major topic for digital platforms in the luxury world, especially when it concerns extremely high-end pieces. We're talking about watches in the 100,000 pound plus up to 1 million something or 2 million, was how do you pay for them? Uh, in some countries where there were lockdowns, for instance, people had to go to their bank three or four or five or six times because they had limits on daily transfers. So they had to take their COVID time to go shopping to pay for a watch. And what happened is many of these companies, such as ourselves, got arrangements with the credit card companies to say, look, can you allow larger payments now that people can pay with their credit card? Something which was kind of unheard of even three years ago to pay for a watch with one swipe. There's only a few people in God's universe who can do that, but now basically everybody who has the, the money can do that. And that's that was a major change. That was one of the stupidly simple things that you must have under control before you can actually even embark on high-end selling. Uh, Hermes had the same with, you know, Birkenbach costing 30, 40,000 euros. You, you don't just tap that into your MasterCard. <laughs> you have, it, it requires extra authentication and all kinds of other things. On top of this is the entire layer that many people are unaware of is the need for companies now to check on where the money came from. So the company, when you go to a boutique, the boutique is responsible, or let's say the brand behind the boutique, for whatever brand it might be, if it's a high-end product, they have to assure themselves that the money has been well-gotten in proper means, that it, the company that you're getting it from is also above board. Um, so every watch company in the high-end, including us, has an entire team of people whose only job it is is to check people, their connections what they're doing. Second aspect, so the, this is just the very simple things like payment. You could, you could spend an hour just talking about how that works. Secondary layer which comes up with digitalization and luxury is the gray market problem. Now, this is affecting everybody from the fashion world to watches to any product you can think of which has a high price tag. And this is a very critical thing too because what's happening now with Instagram with all these things going on, digitally, blogs and, and Twitter and whatever, name it, and it'll be different next year when something new pops up. We have a lot of gray market stuff surfacing. So today, a good company has to also sit down and examine very carefully every client's connections to Instagram, what they do and how, how they work. And if there's a person in that, in that client's, in that proposed client's, circle of contacts who is a known gray marketeer they'll also say sorry we're we not selling you it's not it's not going to happen it's rare but these things are also being checked by all the major watch companies i'm sure Hermes and others are doing the same it's it's quite a crazy time we live in with that so there's this whole onus of responsibility has been placed upon companies within the luxury world that they never had to deal with you know 15 years ago 15 years ago, Russians walked into Harrods with a bag of cash bills and said, here, I want that necklace with the diamonds and I want that watch and fine, sir, here you go. And there's the package and they'd walk out and nobody even questioned, just counted the money. That was it. Those days are long gone, long gone indeed. And that's a, a change 
the second layer of change. So we have the money, just payments, and we have how to deal with communication within that. How do you promote yourself is another layer. You could go on and on with all these things that come out. And that, that was a big problem. COVID forced us all, everybody in luxury. I can say that unequivocally, not having spoken with the entire world of luxury, but I know it's a fact. They had to sit down and say, guys, we can't sit around trailing our fingers. Now we have to make a decision. Are we going to go with online platforms? Are we going to launch? Are we going to make something of this? Or are we going to just sit back and twiddle our fingers and see our turnover decreasing? That was the only choice you had. You had to go. And you had to find a good method. I would say that the footfall in the boutiques, for instance, the London boutique is still, you know, functioning, um, is, is minimalistic. But people are calling up and saying, I would really like to have this watch. And can you send it to me? And they make the transaction and it's delivered by courier. And that works fine for many people. In fact, it's um, it's even become, how can I say this? The necessity of COVID has actually created like a luxury event because what's more luxurious than having a courier drop off your very expensive timepiece? You know, this is actually where the future might be. That might actually stay. Uh, there's many fashion people now talking about the idea of using this concept to bring fashion to people's homes and saying, well, we have your general size here. This is something you might like. If you don't like it, we'll pick it up next week and you can exchange it or whatever. This is also, so it's almost like the necessity has become a luxury in and of itself that people can work this way. In terms of money, we're in a very unusual position because, and it's not braggadocio, but it's really... The Richard Neal product and the Richard Neal clients populate a layer of luxury that nobody else populates. It's very peculiar because we have a very strange, happily, a, a very unusual makeup. We're producing less than 5,000 watches a year. We keep trying to get above 5,000, but it just doesn't quite work. This year with COVID, we had some closures due to the virus, and they're all very, very expensive. So we're much bigger than a small independent who makes 100 watches maybe or 20 or even 50. But we're much, much smaller than, let's say, Patek Philippe making close to 50,000 pieces or Rolex in terms of 800,000 plus. So we're really in this strange popular area at the very tip of the pyramid. And none of the economic laws that usually function for a marketplace apply to us. We can't even find, we've tried to look at economic research material and others, but nobody can help us because we're, there's nothing comparable. Some general watch industry things apply, but not all of it. And that's Richard's genius in having the way, how he created this company and how he built it up and how he created the product uh, and everything around it. So we have this unusual placement that kind of acts like a wall. We have seen no loss of contact with clients. We've seen no cancellations of orders. We don't see people spending less at all. It's as if nothing happened. It's literally as if nothing happened. The only thing we're dealing with is the points I already mentioned to you, but we're not experiencing any change in turnover, in, in positive impulses. We, we still have some models are sold out for five or six years sometimes within days of being launched online. That's quite phenomenal. It's it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, that is way. amazing. 
And I mean, just thinking about how young, relatively how young the company really is, and to be in such a unique position, especially today, is is quite an amazing feat. If you know that's the intended direction. Yeah, it is. It is very much so, and it's even more the case when you consider that um, Richard's designs are. I consider them genius designs. I mean, they belong in any museum. They're on an equal level with any famous designer you could possibly name, even perhaps famous sculptors or painters, if you take some of these pieces. There's nothing less about them in terms of the way they've been created. They are serial products, so they're not going to be like a unique painting or a unique sculpture, of course. But the level of quality of workmanship, artistry, and everything else is right up there with any major fashion house, fashion designer, painter, whatever. And But that has been combined with uh, business sense, a practical way of working, uh, getting good people together, getting a great product, discovering technical solutions for very technical issues of watchmaking, uh, using the materials, etc., etc. So it's, it's the whole package. And one thing that amazes me the most as a former full-time watch journalist is that you have many different brands in the market. And those of us who were watch nerds, watch collectors, can see exactly what was going on, that this particular watch was not designed by the people at Company X. And companies normally get external people. Very popular example of that is Gerald Genta, who designed the Nautilus for Patek, which is now absolutely the rage, um, has been since the 70s. Um, he also worked for Patek Philippe, the Aquanaut of Patek Philippe is also taken from this. He's been involved in major company designs for many people. At Richard Mee, on the other hand, everything has been designed by Richard. And whether the watch is round or tonneau-shaped or rectangular, whatever shape it may have, or even very unusual shapes, it's instantly recognizable as a Richard Mee. I mean, this sounds like such a simple thing. People basically yawn when you tell them that. But to do that, I mean, imagine a fashion house where a t-shirt or a sneaker, a pair of socks, a hat, anything was instantaneously recognizable at a distance as being by designer X. There's very few people who can pull that off. Some of them get almost there, but we do that with watches and it's, it's remarkable. There's a continuity of between everything that's, that's remarkably clearly defined in the brand. Is your attraction to craft? I mean, you know, the craft of music, the craft of writing, craft of watchmaking? Well, crafts to me, yeah, no, how can I say? It's, it's actually very simple. Craft is something transformational. You are transforming something. It's, it's that simple a question. Craft is like that too. The craft of composing, the craft of watchmaking, the craft, everything in crafts is transformational. You're making something out of something that isn't what you finally wanted to become. And that's, that's a very powerful thing to, as a human being, to, to write a book, to, to write even a short piece of poetry, to, you can even say, baking a really delicious cake that makes, makes your family happy. These are all transformational moments in life, and some are more transformational than others, or longer lasting transformations, of course. You know, if you make a sculpture, it's going to be there for a thousand years. It's a different transformation than the pie I just mentioned. Okay. But they all remain 
to be transformational. And I think that's the secret of fascination with everything artistic, everything that's craft orientated. If it's truly great, um, then it's really amazing. Also for the human spirit to be involved in those things. There's so many things to unpick uh, in what you've just said. But before we do, I just want to ask you, what excites you about the job you're doing now? Well, it's, you know, I don't have a job. I have a hobby I get paid for. Uh, so what's, what could be more exciting than that? I mean, I'm looking at watches every day. I'm reading about watches every day. Uh, I'm talking about them too much that I make my friends crazy. So, you know, that was one of the joys of the non-COVID time. I could go to the Swiss shows and at least for a couple of weeks a year, I could be a complete nerd and blend in completely. This was a marvelous cessation because, you know, I'll give you an example. The Dutch people, they're Calvinists, and they're, as Calvinists, I'm sorry to say, they're kind of born as hypocrites, too, because Calvin was one of the great hypocrites of our time. He was a religious leader, and he had his friends burned at the stake deliberately, and anyone who didn't agree with him, he murdered. But he was still considered to be a very great person. So they invariably they said, what do you do for work? I said, I write text for a luxury company, you know, keeping it vague, deliberately. Then after the next glass of beer, yeah, what, what, what company is that? Can you tell me? Well, it's a watch company. You've probably never heard of it. Then they kind of walk away. But what's the name of the company? That's like the third or fourth question. It was always the same, in Holland anyway. I say, well, Richard Mille. Well, I never heard of that. Go away again. A few more beers later, the evening is going on. Come on, tell me, how much do these watches cost that, that you guys make? I said, they started 120,000 euros, something like that, and they go up to 2.5 million. That's disgusting. That's the price of a, you could feed an entire family in Africa like that and blah, 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 blah. And this, that's what I mean about the hypocrite, this kind of, oh, this is disgraceful that rich people can buy such things. And I said to him, how many people could be fed if you sold your Mercedes tomorrow? And suddenly the dime dropped. Because with Calvinists, you see, an expensive car isn't a loud thing. But Calvin, actually, this is a little bit in Germans to have this a little bit too. Calvin propagated against jewelry as being a prideful, ungodly thing. So when you talk with Germans, or Dutch people especially, uh, but also some Germans, you get this kind of, oh, that's disgraceful, that kind of money. Who can spend that kind of I said, you bought a Ferrari. What are you talking about? You don't need a Ferrari to go get your groceries. You're also, you enjoy that, but cars somehow are devoid of this morality that it's something, you know, bad. But if it's a watch, it's suddenly a disgrace. It always makes me laugh because it's it's so completely upside down. You know, it, it reaffirms the complexity of the world uh, in which we live, you know, just in, in, in many different ways, you know, whether it's around how we consume, what we consume, when we consume. Um, and that has changed even more, you know, over the past year. Yes. You know, you're yes. saying that your business, uh, uh, Richard Mill, has not been affected because those customers are obviously um, big supporters of of the, of the company and they um, appreciate the product they buy. But you know, this um, this attitude to um, a car or a piece of jewellery, a piece of clothing or a watch. I mean, it's become so much more complex over the past year in the ways in which we interact with them or don't. It is, it is. I think um, I always get asked, 
you know, about men and watches. They say, what's this thing that men have with watches? And I say, listen, it could not be more simple. Tell me, please, if a guy wants to share something of his personality besides clothing, what can he do? Can he put on a pearl necklace? Well, maybe some pop stars can do that. But let's say a guy in an office, he can't put on a gold brush on his jacket. He can't wear pearls. He Gold bracelets also don't fit the bill very well. He can't go around with golden buckles on his shoes. A watch is the only acceptable, so let's say socially widely accepted place, the wrist of a man, is the one place that a guy can share something of a personality. Is he adventurous, conservative, artistic, passionate? You can show all kinds of things. Even the choice of metal that you use, red gold over steel or something else, says something about you. And this is why almost every man I know who owns a watch, except maybe regular guys like farmers and stuff like that, you know, but I mean, let's say in, in a different social context, they all have four, five, six, seven, sometimes 50, 60 watches at home from Casio's and plastic to tourbillons or whatever else because they enjoy changing. And that's, that's the real secret. Um, in the Far East, it's even more complicated because in the Far East, a big, big, big problem is space. So I was in Singapore one time and I met a former member of the Supreme Court in Singapore and we had dinner together with some clients and this chap. And I expected when I went there, you know, this is somebody of the upper echelons, a highly respected individual, well-to-do. And the house was half the size of our house in Denmark. The floor space was incredibly small. And then after dinner, of course, he wanted to share some of his collections, some artworks, small statues and things, one or two large paintings. And he had seven drawers filled with watches which was his pride and joy because they were small, compact. Um, you could enjoy them and share them with friends and say, did you know this? Have you seen this? Oh, you have one of those. You have a talking point. Did you know they also made like this? If you look at the back, or oh, I never saw the back, show me, please. So you have this wonderful discussion about your hobby and what you're doing. So that makes a, a certain point in the Far East is many, many people are investing in watches because it's really even in a good position they don't have the space to be buying large artworks at Sotheby's or other kinds of things. And they're keeping things in a small, compact way. Watchmaking or horology does bring to mind luxury, if you think about the true skill in making a watch. And I was wondering what you thought about that, whether you think that the, a watch does personify luxury in any way. Oh, that's a, you, could, you could do a book on that subject. Um, it's really bizarre. I mean, I'm the first person, the first person to say that I spend my lifetime with an object, an object of desire for almost everybody, which is absolutely unnecessary and useless. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no one needs a watch. Nobody needs a watch. It's, it's ridiculous. Why do you need a watch? I have the time at the moment, there's, a, there's an electric clock on the wall, there's two telephones, my computer, I have time coming at me from every side of the room, basically. Why the heck do I need a watch on my wrist? And that's what I meant about the emotional contact that for guys showing something, a watch is 
prima facie, it's, it, it's really an object of emotion. That's what it's all about. You're, when you're, when a seller sells you a watch, he's not selling you a watch. He's selling you an emotional moment. Uh, and that's very important to remember. Now, that does not mean that it's not important that the product is perfectly made, that it keeps good time, that it's technically advanced, etc., etc., etc. It's exactly the same as cars. Every brochure you get, let's say you like Audi and you buy the A3, okay? Then the next year, 2000, whatever, you get another Audi and the catalog is filled with, we've improved this, you now get one liter, uh, one, uh, 10 kilometers more in the liter because of energy efficiency and we've polished these bits and we give you chrome bits here and a little bit there. It doesn't make a bloody difference anywhere, really, does it? But they have a story to tell you. And they know that they're only going to get you into that store to get the car if you have that emotional connection with the product. So what you see is the more expensive the product, the more text is produced, the more photos are produced, the more communication is created to feed that emotional sense. But having now put down the watch as a useless object, I refer back to what I said before, that the act of craftsmanship is a transformational act and that's where the watch comes back in again because it may be a useless object but it's no more useless than a painting do you need a painting to work no do you need a fancy clothes to work not really do you need fancy shoes not really you need comfortable shoes <laughs> so it's like many things in life that are not necessary to have um, food and other things of course am i reading you correctly when you're saying that is not you know it's not necessarily why you wear a watch anymore it's not it's for me it's not the case anymore in fact the funny thing is when you tell people how accurate a watch is they often don't care the number of collectors i speak to uh when you get serious with them and you look at their watch the date is often wrong it's not it's slow or fast they haven't even set it properly it's it's really a funny phenomenon in that sense and I see young people today, it's remarkable. I mean, we have very young people we see uh, with these LCD Casio watches that were popular in the 70s. They're wearing bell bottoms and they're doing the whole Saturday night, you know, live, not Saturday night live, what's it called? Uh, dirty, dirty dancing or something Saturday like that. Saturday night Back. fever. Saturday night fever, yes, sorry, thanks. Uh, kind of thing, reliving a period that they never even were alive to, to see themselves. Uh, but they have them on like a bracelet. They're, I know they're not using it because they have their phone in the one hand and they're texting and they have this LCD watch with the retro you know, bracelet from Casio because it's cool and it evokes a period. That's again an emotion. They're saying, I want to be in a different time. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a fantastic. I have three or four of them. They want to be in a different period of time. They want to, yeah, transform into a different era. Uh, that was maybe different, maybe simpler, I don't know, but it had more sense of fun. And that's, again, uh, the 70s was a period of fun. You know, we didn't have the things we had today. It was a much more, there were big problems back then too, let's be honest. But there was a lot more joie de vivre. There was much more fun with life in general and the, even the colors that you wore, you know. But I think, you know, today um, there's a very serious side to watchmaking. Yes. And... You know, if you think about, um, I, mean, I don't know how the Richard Meal watches are made, but I'm suspecting, you know, the, the, there is some reflection in the 
um, construction in in the price. It's not all about the brand. It's it is also no. about the product. This is this is a um, this is a kind of a fallacy that some anti-Richard Neal people propagated in the early years. They were claiming that we were basically just making what were called Veblen goods. There's this guy named Veblen who created a theory, which is probably applicable in many cases, that the more expensive a product is, the more people want to have it. It makes it, the unobtainableness makes it, you know, something desirable. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and I kept saying, no, you've got that really wrong. Um, the people who are saying that have not gone in depth about the information. The problem is, Luxury clients come from all walks of life. There's all kinds of levels of luxury. I've always said, what is luxury? Because there must be 20 definitions for luxury, and often they'll differ from person to person, or social class to social class, or social layer to social layer. Uh, it's not one all-encompassing thing. And I think that's a mistake when discussing luxury, is you can't take it as a, as a monster subject, you have to dissect it first. And because the, the laws and actions of each area in luxury react completely differently when you look at a specific, you know, a specific point. How can I explain that? Um, for instance, give you one example. We spend a lot of attention on something called the going train of the watch. This is the essential transmission of energy from the winding barrel to the escapement. So, what happens is we've used and uh, de designed a, a, a tooth profile of using these wheels that's directly taken from car manufacturing. Why? Because in car transmissions, and don't forget car makers are experts in everything mechanical that has a wheel in it, even more so than watchmakers. They have a tooth profile which transmits energy equally as the wheel turns rather than having it scrape along the side. It's very hard to explain if you go to Wikipedia and look up epicycloidal gearing uh, versus what we're using, you'll, you'll get that. Um, but the point is, those are stories that a car guy says, wow, really? So all the F1 racers we saw the watch, they say, gee, that's incredible. You even go that far? And if I talk to technical people, they start immediately saying to me, but those are very hard to make because you can't make them at standard machines. Those kinds of wheels specifically cannot be made by your standard machine. And that's, again, a very complicated discussion to make. So the involute profile that we're using and the epicycloidal profile, this is a very tiny thing that's ignored by all watch companies. And we have it in there. But if you just look at the watch and say, I want the watch that the doll has. I want the watch that I saw on my friend's wrist. I want the watch that that guy had. You don't care. But the watch nerd picks it up and says, my Lord, really? You're doing that inside? And that's just one little thing. Another example that I use, because it's a very easy example, are screws. Now, screws are things that we don't appreciate at all. Uh, the fact is our entire universe as human beings would collapse without screws. Everything we have uses screws. Your computer would fall apart, your headphones, your car, everything. The, nothing would be manufactured anymore. It would be the world would cease as it is today if screws were not there. And watches, screws are of the utmost importance. In the same fashion, it connects all the pieces together. It keeps the watch ticking. So if you look at a Richard Neal look, you see immediately these so-called torque screws around the bezel, around the front of the watch. They were chosen specifically because you can control 
the amount of force used. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in cars, motorcycles, the guy assembling or working on the motorcycle or car has a complete list saying, look, the bolts on the chassis have to be given this much power of, 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 of say, force in newtons, usually parts of newtons, to tighten them. The parts over here are, are aluminum, so you can't do it quite as much. These other parts are different again, and they have a whole list of how how forcefully each screw needs to be turned. Now, that's a part of really good watchmaking. And torque screws don't scratch because on the top of the screw, there's no slot. It's taken from the sides. So the, the top of the screw always remains undamaged. Now, these screws take 20 operations each, 20 operations each. And just to give you an example, they cost about 1 million Swiss francs, roughly, for one kilo. Now, one kilo is a lot of screws, of course, let's admit that. But still, we use maybe anywhere between 10 and 12 different types of these screws in the watch. Now, you name me one company, and you won't be able to, even if you were an expert, name, find me one company that's having that kind of investment made only in screws to put inside their watches. It's cuckoo. It's cuckooville. That these little examples that could go on for the whole time, just about all these things. When you add that up, then you get this very big price point at the end. That's just the way it works. It's just not some, it's just not fakery. Everything can be shown. You can look at it. You can test it. You can check it out. You can see. I was just thinking, you know, talking about screws and I mean, obviously the cogs and the winders and all those things. I was thinking about there's a watchmaker um, in the UK called um, R.W. Smith. Yes, he's a friend of mine. I know him very well. Are there comparisons between how he works, which is also very specialized? He only makes quite a limited number of watches a year. Yes. I think it's something like 10. Are the processes similar to the way he works and the way... Um, you guys work? There's, um, it's, um, how can I say? He's an incredible watchmaker. I've known him for years. So he's the only student of George Daniels, uh, who was probably one of the world's greatest solo watchmakers as an independent person. He's up there with the best of them. There's only, there's nobody like George Daniels and of that type of person in the watch industry, there's maybe five worldwide, if even that close. D uh, Daniels, was very important, uh, not just because of the pieces he made, but the codification and the proof showing you that a single person could make a watch uh, on their own if you knew all the different things you needed to do in his book. His book codified these principles also for other people. Um, so what Roger is doing is um, he's doing a lot of things with the hand, really with very simple, he's using also uh, some uh, computerized machining. You, when it gets very tiny, you just have to. But he's doing a lot more things by hand than you would find uh, at Richard Meal or other companies. That's why he can only make about 10, 11 watches per year. It's a very slow process. And then we come back again to the emotional value, okay? Um, if you're a collector and you're buying a watch made by this one chap who spent his entire life studying watchmaking and basically creates the watch in a workshop the size of a couple of bedrooms. You know, it has a different flavor to it, emotional flavor and emotional value for you to something which is just one of a thousand or one even of a hundred. So this difference in numbers is a very essential thing um, in the emotional impact of the object. Generally, when you buy from someone like Roger Smith, you're purchasing 
that man's vision directly uh, on almost one-to-one -one basis. You can even talk about the, the type of dial you want and even change details. And it's highly personalized. And there's this personal touch. With Richard Meal, you get, of course, a contact of the man, his vision. You get to share and, and enjoy his vision. But of course, there's a step in between because you have boutiques, you have stores. You're not sitting down with Richard having a cup of coffee discussing your watch. You can do that with Roger. You can have dinner with him also. And that's a little bit of difference. And this is what a lot of people like uh, about independent watchmaking because they enjoy this back and forth and getting a red dial or blue dial where nobody has one or something else. You know, it's, it's a much more personal event. Daniels has had a <clears throat> tremendous effect um, as a friend of mine, David Cottrell in Bristol, he's actually taken, he was given the Daniels book as a gift and he's a retired uh, designer of transmissions. He made transmissions for Borg Warner, for jets, jet fighters, secret things for the, the British government, all kinds of stuff. He actually knows more about gears than any watchmaker from any school in Switzerland. It's incredible because he has a knowledge that's just nobody else has. And he can make all these things in his garage. <laughs> it's crazy. So he's made one pocket watch already. He's now working on number two, which is incredible. And on top of that, he's been designing his own machines. So he read Daniel's book and Daniel said, well, you need to get a special machine for making these patterns in the dial. I won't go into details, it will take too long. So he took a look and he said, oh, they're all too expensive, actually, and none of them are good enough. And he took a year and made his own machine, very complicated machine, but it only takes about 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters. And it does more than machines five times its size at five times the price. These creative geniuses, you know, and that's been generated by Daniels. That's Daniels' larger value in the watchmaking world is he's had an influence on independent people all over the world, into Japan, China, everywhere, Canada, South America, the USA. Uh, and there's very few independents who can say that. There's many independents making watches, but there's only a couple of people like Daniels who can say, about whom you could say, he's had a tremendous worldwide influence from, from sea to shining sea. When we think about um, luxury and you think about, you know, luxury brands and luxury products, which I'd like to differentiate between, um, you know, you've got these watchmakers who are making, like you've said, 800,000 watches in a year. Um, and then you've got the watchmaker who's making 10, you've got the watchmakers making 5,000. The question that I always ask myself is, how can they all be luxury? That, that's, a, that's a very good question. That's a extremely good question. And that refers back to my statement that luxury is, is actually undefinable, or better said, definable for every person in a different way. Um, if you are coming from a, a different background and your parents saved up to buy a Rolex costing 7,000 pounds for you at your graduation, that is a tremendous piece of luxury that you will cherish your entire life. And that's a beautiful story and it's a wonderful thing that people do that. Uh, at the same time, we have at the moment, it's, it's almost unbelievable. We have 16 year olds walking into Richard Mew boutiques and walking out with watches that are in the high six digits 
on their wrist. And for them, luxury is they have so much money that they don't know what to do with it. They probably don't even quite know exactly what they bought, but they just know it's cool. They like the way it looks. They don't need to know about involute gearing and the going train I talked about. They don't need to know about the screws. They don't care. It's just, wow, I love the color, the look. And that's equally valid. You know, this, I'm not trying to make any kind of differentiation in validity of a feeling or emotion, but I'm just trying to show that there's such a wide range of emotions within luxury, you know, and how it works. And if you're used to having luxury all the time, and this is what happens, if you were born into a very high-end family, uh, raised with luxury things, I know kids who were brought up with butlers and, you know, Rolls Royces and being, you know, chartered around to school like that, a person like that, from that environment, has a concept of luxury, which is 10 times higher than somebody like me or somebody else. Yeah, and I, well, I wonder if they even have a cons uh, kind of an understanding of the privilege. Well, that's, yeah. That, but that what you just said is, I find, a very, very key point, because if you don't understand the privilege, you can't appreciate it. Exactly. And I think... Honestly, between you and me and everybody else listening online, I think many people haven't a clue about the appreciation of the luxury that they are existing in. And that's a shame. It's a shame in a way. I found interesting what you said a little while ago about the gift at um, graduation. You know, that is not about the watch. No, no. It's the emotional transfer from the parents to the child of you did a great job and we love you and blah, blah, blah. That's exactly what that is. And that's why I keep coming back that these objects take on a different level. Appreciation, what you mentioned also, is, is another fascinating area because I think, you know, I think all of us fall into this trap of not appreciating things. And it's because of a lack of understanding. I'll give you a perfect example. So let's say you're a classical music lover and you like to go to hear the London Philharmonic or whatever it might be. You're sitting there, you're listening to Tchaikovsky or whatever, the soloist, and it's marvelous, and you applaud, and you go away. I sincerely doubt, sincerely, that any person in that 2,000-man audience has a clue about the number of hours it takes for each individual violinist and performer to study years to play that music, and then not on top of that, to become part of a homogenous sound of the orchestra to get all that training, it takes years. And you're talking about when you look at an orchestra performing, a high-class orchestra, I don't care where it is, it represents literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of hours of man hours, man, woman hours, as would be more correct to say today. Nobody thinks about that. They just say, oh, it was marvelous. What a fine concert, fantastic. No one's going away saying, oh my Lord, you know, it was beautiful. And Think about all the time that was spent. So I think all of us can trap ourselves, um, even a good restaurant. You love the meal. You're not thinking about the chef getting up at five in the morning to get the freshest fish or whatever it was from the market, or even growing his own vegetables and special things in a, in a farm somewhere in Somerset to be able to give food to the restaurant. You don't think about that. You just enjoy the meal and you know he's great, so it's cool. But behind that greatness, you don't go spending time debating what he's been doing. When I go to the opera and 
when I'm in a box, more often than not, I'm looking, watching the orchestra as opposed to watching the stage. I'm mm -hmm. listening to the stage, but I'm watching the orchestra yeah. because I find that much more kind of engaging than watching the people on the stage singing, which might be a bit, uh, you know, odd. I, I, I guess I'm slightly obsessed with this idea of people making things and thinking Roger's making one, you've got a factory making 5,000. Are those people who work in a factory setting, are they trained and would you consider them craftsmen or are they peace workers who come in and just uh, yeah this is a this is a difficult topic too and it's a very good topic to bring up because it's a misunderstanding many 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 people have and um, now we can say it more clearly because your question helps me to clarify even more the difference between roger smith okay and a watchmaker at our factory is the fact that roger can design from paper, from a flat piece of paper, an entire working, functioning, and highly complicated wristwatch or pocket watch, whatever, clock, okay? The training in Switzerland is not built like that. So when we say watchmaker today, it's it's such a, it's, it's a misconstrued word because most of the people you see today or calling themselves watchmakers are not watchmakers, really, in the old sense. In Switzerland and French, they're called rehabilleurs. So they're assemblers, essentially. And they're very talented people. Again, I'm not putting them down. It takes years of training. A complicated watch may require even additional training after your first diploma. But they're given basically a kit. Uh, and in this kit, all the parts of the watch have been assembled, usually two or three trays. The parts have been manufactured. Uh, hand polished where needed and finished and, and taken care of. They've been checked in quality control. And the sole work of the rehabilleur, the watchmaker, as everybody says, the people in the white coats at all the companies in Switzerland you see with the lights and the, the things, uh, is to assemble this correctly. And that's an art form in itself. But if I were to give them a piece of paper and say, okay, uh, I want a dream watch with three hands and a calendar. You know, they would scratch their head and look at you and say, come on, what? You're kidding, really? They can't do it. They might dream about it, but it would take them maybe five or six years of getting out some old textbooks and, and going back to basics. That's how difficult it is. So Roger is a real watch. I mean, the watchmaker in the true sense of the word. And that's a difference that a watch made by him has compared to a company where the processes are all split into sections. Now, don't forget, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, especially also in England, all of these different tasks were split up. They were done by specialists. There was one guy just making cases. There was one guy just making diamonds uh, or, or, or rubies uh, for the wheels to turn on. There was one guy making wheels. There was one guy doing engraving and gold chasing. There was one guy making the crowns with this unusual shape. There was a guy just making the hands. And you literally, you designed the watch, but you then went to all these separate specialists. It's a, quite a vast number. And gave them the drawings and collected the information and came back and then you assembled your watch according to your plans. They were just executed by experts. Nobody says it wasn't your watch, even though you used, you know, 20 or 30 different people. Today, uh, this is all done like Daniels was the one who said, I'm going to teach myself all these trades. Uh, for instance, he writes in his book a nice story about uh, working with one of the very last case makers in London to learn how to make gold cases properly. 
he had no clue exactly. He knew well. He knew roughly how it went, but he didn't have all the key feature details. And that's what I mean about you know Daniel's having an exceptional place uh, within this area. But watchmakers, I'm telling you, all these advertisements you see with the watchmakers and the white lab coats, they're assemblers and very good ones. But they're not all watchmakers in the in the true sense of the word. Are the components that Richard Meal uses are they all made in Switzerland, or do they outsource them from other parts of the world? Yeah. So so we've always had. Um, uh, in fact, this is also an interesting discussion. Um, there is no one company in Switzerland. There's not a single one. Again, I don't care who you bring up, any name. There's not one that does not use external sources for things. There's not one. And I don't mean alligators, you know, from somewhere for the straps. Um, they're all subsourcing things. That's always been Swiss tradition. Swiss tradition was exactly like the English tradition I told you just now, uh, where different valleys and areas of the country develop spe specialties. There were some areas well known for case making. Some areas were known for just making the jewels. Some, you know, it's, it's, it's just a natural process. If you look at apprenticeship in the old days, if you had a family that was making, I don't know, watch cases for different people, and the father perhaps uh, passed away, the tools were there, the family continued the work. The sons and daughters even picked up the tools and did the same work. They had customers, they had tools and know-how. So this kept growing, and even today, we have areas of Switzerland that have kind of specializations that they're known for. So we do exactly the same. We have different suppliers. We try and make more and more parts completely ourselves, uh, also to be less, uh, how do you say, dependent upon vagaries in the supply source chain or something like this. Um, but we're very open about the fact that we go to specialists for Sapphire. We have specialists for this, for that, and the other. And that's completely normal. That's the way Switzerland has always worked since the very earliest times of the industry. And it's ridiculous to try and do all these things in your own little room when a person's been doing it for 150 years is down the street with all this expertise. So it's kind of silly. Um, but what we do say, I began this lateral jump when you asked about Switzerland. The one thing we do say is it's got to be Swiss made. It's very interesting because some companies like Nivorox who deliver almost all the world's balance springs, a highly specialized job. Uh, they had for a while um, a company in Thailand where they were making these springs as well and selling them in Switzerland. There's a sapphire company called Stettler that makes almost all the sapphire transparent glass you see in the watches, whether they're fossil watches or Rolexes. They make the versions in Switzerland for the high-end market and they have an island off the coast of Africa, I believe it's Mauritius, but don't quote me on that, where they make the lower price glasses for Fossil and other companies. They also make glasses for Leica, for the back screens of Leica and things like this. They're generations of you know, sapphire experts, and even they sometimes outsource under certain conditions because it's just economically viable to do that. I just wanted to ask you about those 16-year-olds. Do you think that we are... Um, encouraging consumption and do you think that by doing that we're creating this um, wasteful mentality in people I knew you were going to ask that <laughs> because I've listened to your other podcasts so I was prepared right. for this no uh, 
It's, it's a very good question, but I can give you a very resolute answer. Now, think just for a moment about the poisonous chemicals in batteries. I don't care what kind of battery it is. Car battery, where do you get the most batteries spread over God's universe? Where are the most batteries, or let's say which, which companies spread the most batteries around God's universe than anything else? Try to think for a second. Quartz watches. Cheap quartz watches with their batteries are responsible for poisoning incredible surface areas of, of the earth. It's, this is no joke. Uh, Seiko, for that reason, also tried to phase out quartz some years back and work on recycling. But all that cheap, junky stuff, although I love quartz watches, I'm not saying quartz is bad. Not at all. Don't get me wrong. I, I have several quartz watches. I love them. That's an interesting technology. But the batteries of these cheap things that are like 50 quid or 25 quid or 40 quid that you wear, and actually don't even bother to get the battery changed, you just throw it out. These are poisonous. And if you look at a luxury watch, it is the least environmentally unfriendly thing you can imagine. It's going to be around for centuries. It's going to be cleaned and oiled and used 10 years later, 20 years later, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100, 150, 200 years later. What could be more friendly than that for the environment? Really? When you look at our factory, as a, we built a, a modern, actually now three modern factories. The first factory we built was the first in the Jura Mountains with an underground heating cooling system where they put 600 meter pipes into the ground for heating and cooling purposes. The whole building was heated on two pipes down in the ground. There was no environmentally unfriendly thing to be seen. You have to imagine the gold and titanium and metals are all recycled. All the dust in the factory is caught, filtered, melted down and recycled again. You could not be more environmentally friendly than in the luxury industry for watchmaking. If you're talking about leather and other things, I don't know. If you're talking about mining gold in Africa, I can't comment on that. I don't know the details. But within the watch industry as a whole, I would say the luxury watchmaking world is... is much less uh, dirtying the environment than the cheap junky stuff from the high streets does. With people buying more and more product, do you think we are then in a position to try and um, discourage them from buying you know, so much stuff that they'll potentially throw away? Again, it's, it, you're on a very wide territory here. Yeah. So to put it differently, this discussion came up in the fashion world uh, very strongly in the last few years. Can we recycle clothes? Is it, aren't we ruining the environment also with this endless reams of cotton being made and destroyed and thrown out? You know, in the 18th century, they, they picked up rags to make paper. Now nobody does that anymore. We have to go back to the old fashioned methods. But with clothing, you see, this is a different story because it's a short term thing. You have a spring collection, a fall collection. After a few years, things wear out. You spill a glass of wine on something. In short, we have a very high recycling rate on fashion, generally speaking, except perhaps lob shoes, which I love. Um, but when you talk about watches, this doesn't apply at all. So that's the best thing I can talk about because that watch that you don't like anymore, you will sell, it'll go to another collector. You'll buy some other watch. So it's not as if you're being pushed to, to buy, but in fashion, you go to school, some of the kids, <laughs> 
in high school in America, they, they were asking their parents for expensive Nikes and other things because some other kids got uh, whatever name shoes on their feet and they want the parents to go buy them expensive shoes. This is a question of waste, which is quite different from the watch world where things are expensive and you don't like the, you never throw a watch away. You're always recycling it, e.g. selling it to somebody or doing something with it. It's not going into the garbage heap like many other products do. We've been chatting for quite a long time and it's been very, very enjoyable having this conversation with you. Um, I'm sure you've opened many people's eyes, including my own, into um, the wonderful world of watchmaking. My final question to you, Theo, is perhaps the obvious one, is what is your luxury? Well, the luxury I have is happily where I am. Uh, We live in Denmark on an island. It's absolutely dead quiet. There is no noise. There is no traffic. There's no machines. Uh, At night, it's so dark up here, I can see galaxies with my naked eyes swirling in the distance. Just walking down the street with the dog at 12 o'clock at night. We have pheasants in the garden, deer, foxes, birds of all kinds, uh, wonderful neighbors, lots of space. What more could a person ask for? That, for me, is true luxury. And it's just an old farmhouse in, in Denmark, but I couldn't be happy with it. I don't need gold taps. I don't need a butler. This is my luxury, what I have now. Theo Deal, thank you so much for joining us on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. It was a pleasure talking with you, Sean. I enjoyed it immensely. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books, and thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.